hey, I got a question for you, the question of the day. Who are you? Who are you? Or maybe better said, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You know, um, let me ask it this way. Uh, Not just who you are, not just who do you think you are, but let's say I gave you a fill in the blank that you're to fill in, I am blank. What would you write in the blank? Who do you think you are? How would you describe yourself? Maybe you would say, I'm rich. Maybe you'd say, no, I'm poor. (laughs) Maybe you'd say, I'm young. Ah, I was young, I'm old. (laughs) How how would you fill in the blank? I'm smart, I'm stupid, I'm pretty, I'm unattractive, I'm athletic. Actually, I'm pretty clumsy. Uh, I'm loved, I'm hated. I'm single, I'm married, I was married, I'm divorced, I'm desirable, I'm undesirable. How would you fill in that blank? I'm successful, I'm a mess, I have hope, I'm hopeless, I'm fun, I'm boring. I'm clean. I'm dirty. I'm wanted. I'm unwanted. How would you fill in the blank? I am blank. Who are you? And who do you think you are? You know, that's a question we ask ourselves over and over throughout our lifetimes. Who do, who do I think I am? Who am I? What's my identity? You know, it starts when you're little. For instance, in your family, were you the firstborn? Were you the youngest? Were you the baby of the family? Or were you the middle child who was afraid I was gonna forget you right there? Who are you? What were you like? Were you the funny kid? Were you the chubby kid? Were you the athletic kid? Were uh, you the artsy kid or the nerdy kid? Who were you? What names did others give you? What nicknames did they give you? Was it a good nickname or a bad nickname? One you'd want to repeat or one you'd rather forget? Um, How did they see you? And subsequently, how how did you and how do you see yourself? This continues into elementary school. You get into school and you begin making all kinds of new friends and now there's uh, little by little more expectations and again, you start to believe things about who you are and as life goes on, you hit your teen years and then the question of who do you think you are becomes incredibly complicated, doesn't it? Because you hit junior high and you have no idea who you are. All of a sudden, you're in a new school, you have new relationships, new responsibilities, new authorities, and they're giving you all kinds of input into who they think you are, or at least who they think you ought to be. And suddenly, clothes become more important than ever in middle school. And hair care, and hair products, and how we appear, and how we size up to others. Have I I hit my growth spurt yet? Am I succeeding or failing? Am I one who's part of the crowd or am I always gonna want to be part of the crowd from the outside looking in? Who am I? Who are you? Who do you think you are? 
uh, well, then you move into high school and now everyone wants to know your whole life plan. And you've got to have it figured out on the front end so that you take the right AP courses or you don't and you can prepare yourself to get into the college you hope to get into. And, and everybody has a plan for your life. Who are you? And then you hit college and you've got an opportunity to completely reinvent yourself out of high school, don't you? Maybe you go away from your family and friends and church and community and those who know you and you get a fresh start, or at least that's what you think. And so you start to make decisions about your life and your lifestyle. Will I go to church? Will I not go to church? Will I drink? Will I, will I not drink? Will I be sleeping around? Will I not be sleeping around? Will I uh, join in certain activities or not? What degree will I pursue? Will I pursue a degree? Do I need a degree? What life course will I put myself on? Who am I and who am I gonna become? And this question just haunts us because then you graduate and all of a sudden, it's a full-blown identity crisis because now you're supposed to be an adult. You're supposed to know what you're supposed to do. You're, just, you're to be prepared for all these responsibilities. Will I get a job? Will I work? Where will I work? Will I make enough money? What will I drive? How will I pay my bills? Will I have a relationship? Will I be single forever? And then one day you get your career job and, and now it's like, okay, now, now I have an identity. I just have to follow this path and work my way through it. And I think now I have purpose, but does that really define who you are? You get married and your identity gets pretty conflicted because you thought they were marrying you to help you become who you wanted to be. And they thought the same of you. And all of a sudden, there's some conflict, huh? What's our identity? Um, and then you have children and all of a sudden your identity takes another hit. Uh, for the woman, it starts with a change in her appearance. It affects so much of her identity. She's showing, feeling different, turning into a mother. The man feels the weight of responsibility as a father, or at least he ought to. And all of a sudden, now the child becomes the center around which our family orbits, and they determine when you eat, when you sleep, and if you will. And everything is in chaos and crisis. All of a sudden, your hobbies, your friendships, your free time, all the things that defined who you were, they're gone or altered or affected in some way. And how all of vacation and life and work and your weeks are organized. And then your kids get older and uh, after 18 years, 10 of which they, they really liked you, they move out. Some of you caught that. Uh, they move out and now the center of your home is gone. And now what's your identity? You're empty nesters. And who is this person I'm married to? I don't remember them. When did you get here? And you see there's this crisis of identity and we're always asking ourselves, who am I? Who do you think you are? You know, it's a tough question because then uh, it, it just, it follows us all through life, even up through retirement. Who am I? Who do you think you are? Well, can I give you a better question? Here's a better question than to ask, who do I think I am or who am I? Who does God say you are? That's a better question. 
And thankfully, God gives us the answer to that question. And he does it right away in the beginning of his word in Genesis. He tells us who we are. He tells us then how to live. And so instead of saying, I am blank, I can fill in that blank with what God tells me. We're in a series called Bookends, and uh, we're, we're looking at the beginning and the end of scripture, which are very, very similar to one another. And, and today, what we're gonna see is we're gonna talk a little bit about all the stuff in the middle. Because uh, scripture tells this story where there's beginning, middle, and beginning. There's life to death to life. And we're gonna look at each of those this morning, but we're also, we're gonna spend an extra amount of time just talking about this middle part, this death part. So with that, and with that idea in mind of who do you think you are, keep that question with you today. We're gonna talk about it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you do give us an identity. You create us and give our lives purpose and meaning, and you declare it. It's, it's your plan, your design. So help us to know that and to trust that, to trust you and to live that out. Not to live always chasing after an identity, thinking we can somehow earn it or achieve it on our own. But Lord, let us live the lives you've called us to, who you say we are. Show us that this morning, I pray. Holy Spirit, work in and through me, even as we teach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, the first thing to see this morning and that we've seen in this series is that God creates. God creates. In fact, he created everything. He created all of it. He created everything. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 1, very first verse in the Bible. Uh, if you, you'd open up your Bible to Genesis, you'd, you'd read this. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God was there. Now listen, that's really good news. And what I want to propose to you this morning is that this may be the most important verse in all of scripture to believe. Because if you don't believe this one, would there be any purpose in believing everything else that comes after it? I mean, if, if God wasn't there in the beginning, if he's not before everything and sovereign over everything, is he really much of a God to believe or to trust or to follow? I mean, can I really believe anything he says if he wasn't there at the beginning to know everything? And not only this, but that he created the heavens and the earth. He's powerful, he's sovereign over it all. He he made everything. Again, if if God isn't sovereign over it all, uh, is he really much of a God to follow? He is sovereign over it all. See, this, this statement here in the beginning of Genesis is really a summary of, of uh, the next couple chapters of Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. In, in Hebrew thought, a lot of times they would, they would uh, pair two extremes together and, and by doing so, encompass everything in between. So you have the heavens and you got the earth and everything in between and it would have been understood to know that God created everything. He created it all. And by the way, if he created everything, you know what else that means? He's the one who gives meaning to everything. He gives an identity to everything. That's how it works. If you make it, you create it, you give that thing its identity. Parents, you know this well, don't you? You have kids, they bring you a picture, it's drawn, or they build a tower out of Legos, and what do you say? That's great, 
what is it? And who's uniquely qualified to tell you what it is? They are, why? Because they created it. In the same way, God created everything, so he is the one who gives meaning to everything. He declares what it is. He says who we are. He determines uh, the purpose, like we talked about last Sunday, of marriage and of gender and all of those things. It's his design. We don't get to choose that. He's the creator. It's his. And this is by nature who God is. He's a creator. He creates. He's the originator of all things. And so he gives to all things their identity. And by the way, if God truly created everything, that means he created you and I. He created us. And we are created beings. Sometimes we don't always live like that. We think that maybe we're the ones who are in charge and in control and we're the ones, you know, God just arrived on our scene. At least we live like it at times, don't we? But the truth of the matter is we're created and we don't get to determine our identity. It's given to us by our creator. See, look, uh, Genesis 1, 27, a little later we read God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them, he created us. You and I are created beings. And as created beings, we have a creator who's given us a purpose and meaning and identity. It means that who you think you are isn't the primary question, is it? The primary question is who does God say you are? Who does he say that you are? See, the world says, uh, look deep within yourself to figure out your identity, to figure out who you are. Just dig down deep. And, and better yet, just, just look out and find something that you like and you think would be good and then you determine what's true for you and you just go ahead and go do that and pursue it. And then once you finally achieve it, then you'll have that identity you've always dreamed for. But scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says, no, 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 no. You, you can't achieve that. You have to receive it. God gives you a purpose and a meaning and an identity. He's sovereign over it. He's the creator and the meaning maker and definer. See, uh, I wonder just where are you looking for your meaning and your identity these days? Are you pursuing something, chasing it, trying to find it? Or are you looking to God who gives it freely to you? Then God said, we'll back up a verse here, uh, let us make man in our image after our likeness. See, here's God giving us an identity. He creates us unique. Of, we've, we've covered all this. Of, of everything in creation, we're in his likeness. We're like him to some degree. We're not God, but we are in his likeness. Keep that thought in mind, because it's gonna be really important in the verses, of he, verses ahead. And this means uh, God creating us in his likeness. Nothing else is created in his likeness but humanity. We have a specific place in his creation, a specific purpose. We're above everything else in creation because he tells Adam and Eve to have dominion over all of creation. But we're not God, we're below him. So in a sense, we're, we're humbly honored, do you see? And that's who we are. That's who God's created us to be. But the problem is, a lot of times, sometimes, uh, maybe you can relate to these things, sometimes we tend to get a big ego and we think we're the one who's really honored, not humbly honored, just honored. We're awesome. And we have a big ego. Ego is a Greek word that really means I. 
So to have a big ego means big me. I'm all that. But that's pride. In the same way, sometimes we cannot think of ourselves as being God, but we can put ourselves uh, below where we really are and we can think of ourselves as, as dirty, as scum, as worthless. And in the same way, that's not understanding who I am. That too is pride, thinking too much of me. In that case, too less of me. But what God calls us to is to humility, which is knowing my place, that I'm above lower creation, I'm below him, I'm humbly honored. Uh, And uh, Jesus' little brother James says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So know your place. So again, it begs the question, who does God say you are and I am? Well, we've seen it here, We're, we're image bearers. We're made in his image. We're in his likeness. And because of that, then he he declares who Adam and Eve are and then he gives them commands of how to go live out that identity. And after creating everything, the end of Genesis 1 gives us a summary statement of all God had created, including humanity, and when God saw everything he had made, uh, behold, it was very good. It's the only time it says very good after Adam and Eve were created. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So God creates everything, and it's all very good. He gives meaning and purpose to everything. He created you, and he's given meaning and purpose to your life, no matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done. Well, um, this begs the question, though, doesn't it? I mean, we've, we've covered a lot that God creates, that he creates it all good, but if he created it so good... What exactly went wrong? Because there's a whole lot now that's not so good. I mean, um, think about it. Do you know a child dies every minute of malaria in Africa? Today. Every minute there's a child who dies because of malaria. Did you know that in our world over 27 million people are considered slaves worldwide? 80% of those are women and children. I thought God created everything very good. What what happened? You remember the earthquake in Haiti a little over a decade ago? In in a moment, uh, 260,000 people died. One million were left homeless. What went wrong? And we see tragedies like this all throughout our lives day to day. Maybe we'll face one this week, we don't know. Uh, But similar things happen regularly. How about the war going on right now in Ukraine? Here's some stats as of three days ago. Nearly 4,000 civilian deaths. Over 19,000 Russian troops have died. 3.9 million refugees have fled to neighboring Poland alone. What went wrong? If anything, the last few years too, and uh, you just turn on the news, it's really clear that no one is righteous. No, no one. (laughs) No one's got it together. We're all pretty messed up. And there's this sense in my heart that, how about yours, that, that things are just not the way they're supposed to be. You ever felt that? That longing for something better? Do you know where that comes from? from this first bookend. 
in the beginning, God created everything and he said it was very good. And he created us very good and in perfect relationship with him and with one another. But something clearly went wrong. That's what we're gonna talk about this morning. And in what went wrong, we still long back for that paradise. There's still that echo of Eden in our heart. (laughs) And so we have this sense that things just aren't right. They're not the way they're supposed to be. Because God did create everything good. Well, when he created everything, one of the beings he created that we haven't talked about yet in this series are angels, angelic beings. And uh, we don't know exactly when he created them other than the fact that he did, and even some of the angels make clear that they're created beings, like we are. But you know, there was one angel in particular whose name is Satan. And he's a divine being created by God, but he rebelled against God. He, He wanted to be God. He didn't want to submit to him or follow him. He wanted to be God. He wanted to take his place. And he wasn't content to serve him. So he rebelled. And scripture tells us that he recruited approximately a third of all the other angels to join him in that rebellion. Well, you can imagine that probably didn't go well. And Revelation 12 tells us about it. It tells us that war actually broke out. War arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. That's Satan. We're going to see here in a moment. And the dragon and his angels, the ones he recruited, they fought back. But he, the dragon, was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And when the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Here's the start of what went wrong. Satan rebels. He recruits a bunch of angels with him to join his schemes against God to take his place and he fights and he loses and he's thrown down to the earth. And uh, one of the things about Satan is that while God creates, Satan counterfeits. He counterfeits. He promises more than he can deliver. You know, uh, Satan wants to be God. He he wants to be rich. He wants to be in charge of everything, but uh, Instead of recognizing that he never will be, he's like the guy who buys an inkjet printer and starts printing off $100 bills thinking that's gonna make him wealthy. He counterfeits. He counterfeits. He recruited a third of the angels in heaven to join his scheme, but then he was cast down to the earth. And here's what we're about to see in Genesis 3 when we're first introduced to him in scripture is that since he could no longer recruit angels, he begins recruiting humanity to join in his schemes. So we're gonna work through Genesis three. If you got your Bible, you can turn there now, where we're first introduced to this ancient dragon, this ancient serpent, Satan, and uh, see how everything went wrong. And and by the way, we've been talking about your identity. We're gonna come back to it. We're gonna keep coming back. But knowing who you are, who God says you are, is what's key to battling the temptations that Satan throws at you. Because you can recognize what he's saying I don't think that's true. That's not really what God said. And that's certainly not who God says I am. So I'm not gonna believe that. I'm not gonna buy into what you're promising because I know you never deliver. And understanding who we are helps us win this battle. 
Uh, and by the way, uh, Solomon gives us a clue of kind of how all this is going to go down in uh, Ecclesiastes 7, where he says, see, this alone I found that God made mankind, out. he made us upright, but they've sought out many schemes. We've bought in to the enemy's lies, and we've messed it all up. Well, we're going to see Satan here working in reverse. So if you've got your Bible, open up with me to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we read this. Now the serpent, the serpent, you remember who he is? We just read about him in Revelation. That dragon, that ancient serpent, back here in the beginning. The devil, Satan himself. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Did God really say that? I mean, he said you couldn't eat of any tree? If you've been with us the last few weeks or if you know your Bible, you know that that's really not what God said, is it? Satan takes away from what God says. He twists it. What God actually said was, no, here, you're in the garden and I'm gonna put you here and you can eat of any tree you like except for one. There's just one tree you can't eat from. Because if you eat of it, you'll surely die. You'll die. See, God, there, there were all these trees, and two of them had names. There was the tree of life, and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what God does is he presents Adam and Eve with a choice between life and between death. Doesn't really matter what fruit grew on those trees. It's just it was a choice between life and death. Choose to obey, choose blessing, choose to sin, choose to suffer. And so... Uh, the woman said to the serpent, she says to Satan, well, you know, we can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said this to the woman, you will not surely die. See, what Satan does is he either takes away from God's word and ignores what God has said, or he adds on to God's word, adds on to what God has said and twists it. You won't surely die. No, that's total opposite of what God said. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's working in reverse here. What was the order God created us? He created Adam, then he created Eve from his side. What's the order Satan goes? He goes to Eve, who then turns and gives the fruit we're gonna see in a moment to her husband, Adam. Satan's like, uh, I shared with you like me when I was a young boy and my grandma was crocheting all the time, you know, knitting Afghans. And I saw it sitting in the basket alongside of her chair and I like to go grab the string and just start pulling and unraveling the whole thing because it was a lot of fun until I got caught then I got in trouble. But that's what, that's what Satan does is he's, he's always pulling on that string trying, trying to unravel what God has put in place. He's working in reverse. For, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like him. The thing is, they were already created in his likeness. He's a liar. He's twisting the truth. Do you know uh, his schemes, by the way, aren't very uh, original today? They're similar over and over and over throughout time. He hasn't really changed his strategy. He used the same one with Jesus in Matthew chapter four. In Genesis three, you know, you, you can eat of that tree. That's not gonna hurt you. In Matthew, Genesis three, and then in Matthew four, he tells Jesus, you can eat by changing stones to bread. 
He appeals to personal gain in Genesis 3. He says, you won't die. You surely will not die. And to Jesus, he says in Matthew 4, oh, you won't hurt your foot. Just take a jump. It won't hurt that. You won't even get hurt. He appeals to power and glory. He tells them, uh, you'll be like God. You'll be in charge. You'll be in his place. He's holding out on you after all. He tells Jesus in Matthew 4, you'll have all the world's kingdoms if you bow down to me. But in each case, Jesus already had all the world's kingdoms because he's God. And Adam and Eve are already in his likeness. So they're like him to a degree. Do you see he's lying? He's saying do this and achieve that identity. So when the woman saw though that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, no idea what the fruit was. Some people say, oh, it was an apple, it was a pomegranate, I don't know. The one thing I know is it looked delicious and in the moment, it was delicious. Do you know how I know? Because she takes a bite and then what's she do? She turns and says, hey, Adam, take a bite. This is great. Try this. He didn't do anything. He just stood there and took a bite with her. But here's the deal. Uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that, that sin is pleasurable. I mean, would we sin if there wasn't some pleasure in it? I don't think we would. The problem is that the pleasure of sin the writer of Hebrews tells us it's fleeting. It only lasts for a little bit and then it flees. And Satan, he promises this good thing and this pleasure, but he overpromises and he never delivers. And in fact, just look at the next verse, their pleasure didn't last long because then the eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked. For the first time, they feel shame and they feel guilt and they're afraid. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Fig leaves are, it's a large leaf, but it's not that big. And it's not gonna last very long. It's gonna wither like any other leaf. See, we do that in our sin too. We hide and we try to cover things up and cover ourselves, but the reality is we can never cover over everything ourselves. We, we just can't do it. We're inadequate to do it. And so are Adam and Eve, our first parents. And the thing is, in that moment, if Eve had been thinking about who she truly is, made in God's image, in his likeness, she could have either replied and said, no, that's that's not true, I'm, I'm in his likeness. Or she could have simply just fled and turned away and said, I, we're not having this conversation. And in the same way, Adam could have done all of those same things. And he could have actually stepped into the middle of it and said, whoa, 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 whoa. no, 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 we're not going there. And, and he could have saved himself and his wife from all the shame that was to come. But both of them just willingly entered into this. And they heard the sound of the Lord then, the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they try to cover it up, and then they hide. We do the same things. 
And like they hide behind the tree, like, is God gonna see me? I hope he doesn't see me. Like he couldn't see around the tree or know they were there. But we do the same things. Again, parents, if you have children, uh, which I guess if you're a parent, by definition, you have children. Um, you've seen this play out, right? Your, your kids do something and what do they do? If they know it's wrong, they hide. Or they close their eyes and think you can't see them. And uh, they try to cover up maybe what they've done. And while we see it in kids, we, we see it in ourselves too. We're just better at it than they are. And so God called to them. He called to the man and he said to him, he said, hey, hey, where are you? After your child runs and hides and you go looking for them, hey, where are you at? Do you really not know where they are? What happened here? Do you really not know? Of course you know. You're hoping for them to say so. Well, God, as our father, as a good dad, he's coming, doing the same thing, looking for them. Notice his first words to them, too, are not, what have you done? How'd you mess this all up? No, it's, it's where are you? He's searching for them because he loves us. He already knows. And he comes after them. And then Adam said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And God said, well, who, who told you you were naked? Did, did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, oh, it's the woman. <laughs> he starts, the blame game begins here, right? The woman. And, and by the way, it was the woman you gave me. I didn't really choose her. You just kind of brought her to me. I think it was her fault. You did this, right? My problem isn't me, it's my spouse. Those of you who are married, do you ever feel that one? That's, that's not true. It's us. He needs to point the finger at himself. And so then God goes to the woman, he goes to Eve, and he says, what's this that you've done? And she does the same thing. Well, it wasn't me. Notice the order God goes in versus the order Satan goes in too, by the way, right? He, Satan works in reverse of God's plan. So then he goes to the woman. He started with the man because he bared the greater responsibility in his marriage. And he said to the woman, or she said, well, the serpent, he deceived me, and so I, I ate. It's not her fault, not me. And so then the Lord said to the serpent, what is this that you've done? He had said to the woman, but he says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15 is a key verse in all of scripture. If you don't have it highlighted, circle it, do something. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, God says, between your offspring, you and all those you've recruited into your schemes, he says to Satan between all of you and then all of her offspring, all of humanity. And ultimately, there's one coming from her. He will bruise your head and you'll bruise his heel. You'll nip at his heel and it'll hurt, but he's gonna crush your head. 
Friends, this is the first promise of Jesus coming. Theologians call it the proto-evangelion, the first proto-gospel evangelion. And Jesus is coming to fix what Adam and Eve and you and I have messed up. And notice this is before he, he ever deals with their sin and their disobedience. He promises a fix. See, the good news here is that there's a new Adam coming, a new offspring of the woman. There's a new Adam coming. Paul talks about this. He says the first Adam became a living being and the last Adam, speaking of Jesus, a life-giving spirit. As as all men and and women die in the first Adam, uh, all men and women can live through the second Adam. Through the first Adam came death to all men. Through the second Adam comes life to all who would believe. And there's, a, there's some bookends in scripture for you there between Adam and Jesus. Adam turned from the father in a garden. Jesus turned to the father in a garden. Adam was naked and unashamed. Jesus was nearly naked and bore our shame. Adam's sin brought us, brought us thorns. Jesus wore a crown of thorns. Adam substituted himself for God. Jesus is God who substitutes himself for us. Adam sinned at a tree. Jesus bore our sin on a tree. Adam died as a sinner. Jesus died for sinners. And so then, after making this promise of this new Adam that's coming, God first goes to the woman, works his way back up, and he said, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Ladies, does... Childbearing still hurt? <laughs> yeah, I think it does. Um, that's a result of the curse. In childbearing, in pain, you will bring forth children. Life will come out of pain. Your, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He'll rule over you. The, the, the happily ever after will be uh, full of pain in our sinfulness. In verse 17, to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for your dust and to dust you shall return. See, Satan is working in reverse. He's working in reverse. And uh, as we, if we circle back here, he was, he was crafty, he was, uh, he, he said, did God really say, that's what he always says, did God really say that? Are you sure you know who God says you are? Are you sure? I think he might be holding out on you. And then uh, he says to Eve, you know, uh, you won't die. God's holding back. In fact, if you do this, you'll be like God. Do this and achieve that identity. And those are our two choices with identity. It's either identity can be uh, achieved and I achieve it and I do enough good things to earn God's favor and to earn who I want to become or I just choose an identity and I run after it or the other option is that identity is received, that it's given to me. One of these is a lie and one of these is the truth. Option one is the lie, option two is the truth of the gospel. That Jesus tells us who we are. We're his image bearers 
And he, in, in dying on the cross for us and restoring us, he's restoring that identity. He's, he's taking us from death to new life. Well, God creates and Satan, Satan counterfeits, but the good news is that it's not forever. It's not forever, because in the end, Jesus wins, and Satan is crushed. As we read already, uh, God made that promise right away from the very beginning. And by the way, uh, everything else that happens in God's story is tracing this promise all the way through. As you get later into Genesis and then Exodus and into the narratives of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, who, who is this offspring of the woman? Who's gonna crush the enemy's head? Who's it gonna be? And, and how's he gonna fix everything? And that's the thread that goes through every page of this book. And we know because of this part in history we live in that it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. Jesus wins and Satan's crushed. That's why Paul said the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And as I said at the very beginning today, God's story goes from beginning to middle to beginning. This book ends. And Genesis three begins this middle. It's everything that went wrong. But the middle also contains a promise for that new beginning of how it's all gonna be fixed. And uh, right away we see this too at the end of Genesis three, the Lord God after uh, he had told them their consequence for their sin, he made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. No longer fig leaves, but now God covers them symbolizing the fact that he would cover us permanently in Christ as we turn to him. And then uh, God said, behold, the man, he's become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest uh, he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so uh, therefore God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove him out and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Why did God do that? Isn't that kind of mean? Let me ask you this. Do you want to be a sinner forever? Do you want to be broken forever? Because in their brokenness, if they had gone and eaten from the tree of life, that's exactly how it would be. Imagine if Adolf Hitler lived forever and even the grave couldn't stop him or Saddam Hussein, or Osama bin Laden, or fill in the blank, or all of us in our multiplied sinfulness. See, God's grace guards them from that until he can fix it. And then though, at the end, we get back to the beginning where we read this. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, this is looking at heaven from the throne of God and from the lamb, that's Jesus, through the middle of the street of the city. Remember, we went from garden to city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life, it's back with its 12 kinds of fruit. But this time it's not guarded. It yields new fruit every month. Fruit of the month club in heaven. And it, what's it for? Not to trap us in our sinful state, but for the healing of the nations. So God takes us from beginning, he's with us all the way through the middle, and he's gonna fix everything we jacked up 
to bring us back to the beginning. And his grace is in all of it. And friend, the great news is that while we're in the middle and everything's messed up, you're invited to the beginning. You can go back to the beginning and it's simply by faith of saying, Jesus, I need you, I trust you, I turn to you. Fix me, save me, renew me. And he promises to do that as you put your faith and your trust in Christ. Let me pray.